You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Before I go any further, please be aware that the second half of the show discusses female genital cutting. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Shirwat. When Australians go to the polling booth, it's usually a straightforward experience. A polling officer will check your details and mark you off the list. But this might all change if the Morrison government has anything to do with it. In October, the coalition introduced the Electoral Legislation Amendment, Voter Integrity Bill 2021. For the remainder of the show, we're going to refer to this bill as either the Voter Integrity Bill or the Voter ID Laws. I reached out to Edwina MacDonald, the Deputy CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service, about this bill and what it means by a democracy. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Medina Idris and Rani Premasetti from the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health to discuss the practice of female genital cutting. That's later in the program, but first, let's go to Edwina MacDonald. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Edwina. Thank you, it's great to be here. Great to have you. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, I'm Edwina McDonald. I'm the Deputy CEO at ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Service. Before we look at the proposed voter ID laws, let's look at the current system. Mm-hmm. What is the current system with regards to identification laws? Sure, so currently when you go to vote on election day, it's pretty straightforward. You attend a polling place, you tell the polling officer your name and your address, and they mark you off on the roll, they give you your ballot paper, and then you're on your way. Okay, so it's very straightforward. What is the Morrison government now proposing? So what they're proposing is to have some requirements around voter ID so that when you attend to vote, you either have to have identification to establish who you are. They do have some uh, provisions around what happens if you don't have identification. Uh, But from our perspective, they're, they're problematic still in that one is that you're have somebody else with you who also has identification so that first of all requires you to be voting with somebody who you know who also has identification that's not the case for everyone some people attend by themselves or some people who don't have identification will also um, be with people who similarly don't have identification the other uh, part of the proposal um, is that there's a process called a declaration vote that you could follow in order to vote without identification Um, but we're concerned that this process is complicated and confusing and also really concerned about the messages that will be sent out to people and their understanding of what it will take to allow them to vote. Hmm. So I did a bit of reading and from what I've read there doesn't seem to be any evidence of like a wide-scale voter fraud issue so if that isn't the case where is this coming from? Yeah absolutely there's just no um, evidence that there's a problem here that needs to be addressed 
We've got election systems with the highest integrity. The Electoral Commission has said that this is a minuscule problem. It's just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and actually, we've got the Parliamentary Joint Commission on Human Rights coming out, uh, um, coming out today. That's not going to help you for a Monday show. <laughs> but the Parliamentary Joint Commission on Human Rights had just come out last week to say that it's not clear uh, that, that what this bill will do, that it might actually reduce public confidence in the electoral system and discourage voters from voting because of the perception they can't vote if they don't have ID. So it's really clear uh, that there's not a problem here to address. And, and it, actually, it's really confusing to me um, as to why we're seeing this bill before Parliament now. Um, people are likening it to what's happening in the US. Do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, certainly we've, we've seen um, circumstances in the US where barriers are being put up uh, to, to people being able to vote. There's obviously a different context there in the US in that they don't have compulsory voting. Um, and so there, there is a, a strategy in the electoral system there uh, around um, getting out the vote or inhibiting the vote. And certainly it, it would seem that there's similarities being imported here um, around creating barriers of access to vote and, and a concern that that could be what's happening here. Here, obviously, we've got compulsory voting and, and this really doesn't make sense in a compulsory voting context. In a compulsory voting context, we should be doing everything that we can to support people to have their say and to have a vote. We shouldn't be putting barriers in place. Hmm. And if this bill was to become a reality, who will it affect most? The concern that we have is that the people who currently face the greatest barriers to vote, who currently need the greatest support to vote, are those that will be most affected by this. So we've got a bill that's addressing a non-existent problem, but potentially causing harm for the people who need the greatest support or face the greatest barriers to voting. So in, in that regard, people who are homeless, people who live in remote communities, um, First Nations people, recent immigrants, young people who might not have obtained ID yet, who might be coming up to vote for the first time. Um, also potentially women who are fleeing domestic violence and who may have left identity documents behind in doing so. Um, not everyone has a birth certificate. So there's a whole range of reasons why people might not have ID or access to ID, um, generally in circumstances where they're facing other barriers, both in terms of the electoral system, but more generally barriers and discrimination. And here we are putting in a, a proposal that would create a further barrier to them voting and participating in our political system. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems like the same song and dance. It's always the people on the margins who are impacted by these kind of laws. In terms of like inconvenience, how will this inconvenience voters? I'm not so worried about the inconvenience. Um, I'd say it's more the, the confusion and the fact that you've got, um, you know, I, I think I've heard the Prime Minister say, well, what's the problem? We've got a process, you can still vote if you don't have identification. Um, but already it's a process that requires, a, you know, quite technical form and understanding of what that form is. Um, the need to fill that out, but more so it's, it's sending a message to people um, that you need ID to vote. And so what people will hear is that, well, if I don't have ID, I can't vote. And that's, that's the message that's likely to get out or that you'll have to go through a complex process. And that in itself will deter people from even turning up at the polling booth. Mm. Um, I think we can expect there to be confusion around it if it was to be um, implemented before the election. There's actually not time to set up the processes around it, to educate the 
you know, people working at the polling booths around how does this work, what happens when somebody turns up without ID, um, as well as the, the messaging around what it means for voters. So, so my primary concern, I guess, is not so much about inconvenience, it's more about confusions and barriers that will prevent people engaging. Mm. So Kevin Rudd, I'm not sure if you've read the article, but he wrote a scathing piece on the bill and basically what it means for our democratic system. Mm -hmm. And he's called it an assault on democracy. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what are your thoughts on that? Because that's such a heavy comment or a statement to make. Look, I haven't read Kevin Rudd's article. I'll have to go and look that one up. The, The bill is, I mean, it's completely unnecessary and there is this risk that it's going to harm democracy. If you're creating barriers to people to vote, to creating barriers for political participation, that's actually harming democracy. It's not strengthening democracy. I think the, the bill has got um, integrity integrity in the name um, of the bill, but this is not a bill that will further the integrity of our electoral system. And that's really clear. That's the concerns we've seen expressed by the Human Rights, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights, where they've said that, that it may actually reduce public confidence in the electoral system and discourage voters. And that's certainly harming our democracy. I think what we would need is a government to be looking at removing barriers to voting, not creating them. It should be looking at um, how to support people to vote, not making it harder for people who already experience discrimination or inclusion. And their priority should be about making sure it supports everyone to exercise their right to vote. I think um, if they're really interested in the integrity of our democracy, uh, they should be doing this. But also there's other things that they could be doing that would really further democracy rather than harm it. They could be scrutinising political donation laws. They could be creating a proper national integrity commission. They could be making it easier rather than harder for community organisations to participate in systemic advocacy. So these are all actions that they could take which would increase the integrity of our systems and our democracy rather than than this bill, uh, which has the potential for discrimination and harm. Thanks to Edwina MacDonald for coming on the show. Edwina is the Deputy CEO of the Australian Council of Social Service. Check this week's show notes to learn more about the Voter Integrity Bill 2021. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Female genital cutting is practiced in 31 countries and affects more than 200 million girls. It is done by force and sometimes through coercion, often with the approval of family members and loved ones. In this next segment, we'll find out why it's still practiced, the health risks, and what's being done to tackle this problem. Helping us unpack this issue is community development worker Medina Idris and senior project officer Rani Paramasetti. I begin the conversation with Medina, who will discuss what FGC is, and then I'll speak to Rani, who will explain the NEFTA leadership program. We open this segment with Medina sharing a bit about herself and her work. My name is Medina Idris. I'm a family and reproductive education writers program, FARAB uh, worker at uh, Multicultural Center for Women's Health. I've been working on this program nearly for 21 years and the program is just to raise awareness about the practice of female <coughs> genital cutting and to provide information about how the affect them. That's great. Thank you. So now what is female genital mutilation? 
female genital mutilation or female circumcision. We use circumcision when we talk about it with the community because, you know, it is um, the terminology of female genital mutilation is not accepted in the community. So what is female circumcision? It is being classified by the World Health Organization. All procedures involving partial or total uh, removal of the external female genital, uh, genitalia or other injury to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. So... This including pricking or pressing or cutting the clitor or the libia minora or libia majora. So, or stretching of the clitor and the libia, cauterization, uh, burning or the clitor and the surrounding tissue, scarping or, you know, the tissue around the vagina for cutting the vagina. So this including a substance or herbal uh, introduction into the vagina. What you've just said sounds horrible. It's very horrific. Um, so my question is, what would motivate a family member? Because usually it's someone that they know. It's not strangers. What would motivate them to do that to their female uh, family member? Yeah. Um, actually, um, you know, female circumcision or female uh, genital mutilation is predate uh, both Christianity and uh, Islam, and it doesn't belong to any specific religion. The reason for doing this one is, you know, just it is a belief system based on cultural and social uh, traditional that affect women's social acceptance and marriageability within her family, uh, with her, her community. So just, you know, um, it is a sense of belonging. So, uh, you know, a young girl have to be circumcised to be accepted by her bill, you know, and also the society. Hmm. I'm yeah. glad that you said that because I think when people hear about FGM, they think that it's someone in the shadows doing this to the girls. And a lot of the time it's people they care about. And I only know this because I have family members who it's happened to and the people who've done it are people who love them who care about them so when they do do these things they're not doing it because they're horrible people it's because of like it's kind of these really weird ideas about controlling women's bodies and so I think it's important for people to understand what motivates someone that apparently cares about you to do something like this what about the health risks what are the health risks of FGM uh, we can say in a short time and long time. Uh, for in the short time, you know, the, um, they will have a flashback uh, back, you know, of the practice and also the health implication. They have fever, infection, and uh, at that time, and for a long time, they have, you know, as we said, it does have implication in the reproductive and social, um, sexual health of a, a woman, like when they have. For example, uh, before uh, period, the period cannot flow, you know, slowly. So they have um, some pain and cramp uh, as normal. It has happened to others, but theirs is a bit, you know, severe. And also um, when they get married, 
it is very hard for the sexual um, intercourse, you know, uh, with, um, and then after that, if when they get pregnant, they will have, you know, a problem of uh, normal delivery. So they have to have assistance and, you know, uh, care plan for uh, this woman, especially with your type three. Uh, so to be cut, you know, before having the baby. You mentioned care plan. What does care plan look like for survivors of FGM? Uh, they have antenatal, uh, you know, clinic or appointment at any hospital. Uh, they will be asked that if they have um, uh, FGM, so if they are affected, and if we, for example, myself working at the Royal Women's Hospital in the same project, just we ask women, and if they have uh, FGM, they will be referred to Africa Women's Clinic, which is a, a clinic is being run by midwife at the Royal Women's Hospital, uh, a fortnight clinic. So they will be referred to this clinic. They will have a care plan, like, you know, being uh, consulted and also examined. And if the uh, midwife knew that they have FGM, special type 3, then she will be cut before, you know, having the baby. Now that you have a better idea of what FGC is and why it's practiced, Let's go to Rani from the National Education Toolkit for Female Genital Mutilation Cutting Awareness Project as she discusses the leadership program. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Rani. Thank you so much for having me, Ayan. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm the Senior Project Officer for NETFA, which is the National Education Toolkit for FGMC Awareness. And I'm based out of um, the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. So NETFA is quite unique in the Australian landscape in terms of the work that we do on FGMC. Um, Every state and territory has a worker that normally works part-time on this issue of FGMC, but NETFA is the only um, project that tries to coordinate the work on FGMC nationally. So we do um, a lot of um, coordinating work, connecting different organizations and workers um, working on this issue. And then thankfully this year, um, we've been funded again by the Office for Women, and we're going to start something new, which is the NETFA Leadership Program. And then another really important role that NETFA plays is that we are a national resource on the issue of FGMC. So if you go to netfa.com.au, you'll find a whole bunch of resources, um, whether videos, webinars, um, readings, um, flyers um, for health professionals, as well as for individuals who are interested and passionate about this issue. So um, again, that's on netfa.com.au. We've spoken to Medina just before we started this interview and Medina did a really good job of discussing what FGM is. So I won't get you to tell us what it is, but there's a leadership program that your organization is running to address uh, FGM or perhaps bring awareness. Tell me more about that Mm. program. Yeah, so this is um, it's a really exciting uh, initiative that we're able to do through NETFA um, next year. So um, the NETFA Leadership Program is a paid national leadership program for people from communities and countries where FGMC is practiced. So it's really, it's an opportunity for people who want to help lead positive change in their communities and bring an end to the practice of FGMC globally. Um, We will be equipping people with some really core um, life skills. Um, So things like um, leadership skills, confidence building, communication and public speaking skills, 
And then also storytelling skills. So we want to equip people to tell stories for us, by us, um, on this really important and often sensitive topic as well. And in addition to these skills, we'll also be teaching people all the different layers and all the different angles into this issue of FGMC. It's a really complex issue, as Medina has already um, uh, spoken about, um, from the sexual reproductive health lens, it's very complex. And then there's a lens of the human rights lens. Then there's a lens from um, violence against women lens, which some people, you know, um, tackle this issue from that perspective. There's lots to unpack when it comes to FGMC. So what you've just discussed, it seems like you're offering a lot of incentives and I'm glad that this is a paid position because a lot of the time people in my community um, do incredible work whether it's emotional labor and so on so I'm glad that they're being compensated in terms of who you're looking for what kind of qualities are you looking for in a a Mm. potential leader yeah so firstly um, it's important to say that you do not need to have experience FGMC personally to be in the program That being said, we are looking for people who come from communities or countries where FGMC is practiced. The reason being, in the consultations that we've done, it's pretty obvious that sometimes the way this issue is talked about is not very respectful. And so one of the things we want to um, grow through this leadership program are um, strong leaders um, with storytelling skills to be able to take back the narrative on this issue. So... That's why the focus is on people who come from communities or countries where FGMC is practiced. Um, Secondly, uh, just to give you a bit of the scope of the program, we're looking for up to 12 participants nationally. So we're aiming for about two people per state or territory. Um, And it's open to all ages and genders. Uh, Again, the reason being uh, in our consultations um, as we're designing this program, we've heard that Of course, we want to grow the next generation of female leaders on this issue, but also there's a really important role that men have to play as well. So we are also open to um, male identifying and perhaps people of other genders um, who might be interested on being an advocate on this issue, on helping to NFGMC to come forward and express their interests. And finally, um, we're looking for a mix of community members and professionals who are either already working on this issue or they are interested and curious about how they can be part of the movement to NFGMC. Of course, some people might be both. They might be a community member and working already professionally on this issue. So that's also welcomed. Um, So in order to express their interest, they just need to email me. Um, it's at rani at mcwh.com.au. Um, that's my name. So that's R for Romeo, A for Apple, N for Nelly, I for India, rani at mcwh.com.au. Hmm. Oh, and um, in terms of, um, I'll start again. I also want to encourage people to get in touch with me now because really this month is when I'm wanting to hear from people who are interested in this program so that your interests, your needs, your skills, your strengths can inform the design of the program. The program itself will take place in April to July next year. This sounds like a very exciting project. I love that it's A, inclusive, and it's very comprehensive as well. I have a few minutes left on Zoom, so I want to get in two quick questions, if that's okay. So the first question is something that we discussed um, off air, which was why sometimes going to the police isn't perhaps the best solution. So if police aren't your option, what then? Mm. 
Sure, sure. So um, what we found in doing this work is that there's still a need to keep raising the awareness about the fact that FGMC is illegal in Australia. Um, so our recommendation is if you think that someone is at risk of having FGMC done to them or they are intending to take someone out of the country um, to have FGMC done, which also is illegal in Australia, um, please get in touch with us at Multicultural Centre for Women's Health, at NETFA, at FAREP, um, because through NETFA, we are connected with organizations nationally working on this issue, health organizations. It is much better if the initial conversations with the community members are a health response, because sometimes they might not be aware that this is illegal in Australia. And the last thing that we want is for them to come into contact with police or the criminal um, justice system when actually they are not aware that this is illegal in Australia. Um, as Medina has already said, you know, the motivations for people wanting to do this may often come from a place of um, love and beliefs in the community. So please, please um, try and connect with us at NETFA, us at uh, Multicultural Centre for Women's Health, so that this can be a health response, so that it can be an opportunity to educate about the laws and also the health and reproductive risks that come with this practice. That was Rani Paramasetti, the Senior Project Officer of NEFTA. Before that, you heard from Medina Idris, who is the Community Development Worker at the Family and Reproductive Rights Education Program. And that is all from us this week. Woman on the Line is a Community Radio National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 8377 Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au slash womanontheline. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. We leave you today with Nina Simone's haunting but fitting track for Woman. I'm Ian Shirwa and I hope you can tune in again next week. black My arms are long My hair is woolly My back is strong Strong enough to take the pain Again and again What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah My name is Aunt Sarah Aunt Sarah My skin is yellow Between two worlds 
I do belong My father was rich and white He forced my mother late one night What do they call me? listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.